Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I've got a question for you. <laughs> oh, do you now? I do. Okay. When you order milkshakes, do you order other people's milkshakes and use I those? I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. <laughs> and then when you're done, do you use it to bring all the boys to the yard? I do. Every time. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. That's how I bring them to the yard, actually. They bring your they, milkshakes My to. milkshakes bring them but to the yard. If you take someone else's milkshake, but it, does it take someone to their yard? Ooh. Do you still <laughs> get the boys to your yard? This is a difficult question. If you're drinking but someone else's... I still else's... think that my milkshake would bring all the boys to the yard. Sure, but what about... it's better than yours. But... <laughs> is that why you had to charge? <laughs> no, but, so if you, but if you drank someone else's milkshake, whose yard would the boys go to? I guess... Probably their yard, because that's where the milkshakes are. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> that deep existential crisis question solved I, by some yeah. logic. Uh, David Parker logic. <laughs> there we go. Right for you. Stamp sealed I and mean, committed. that's where I would go, where, where the milkshakes are. You know, if you you better get that patented. <laughs> Just as a little tie-in <laughs> again nicely to what we're talking about today. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to be discussing the 2007 Paul Thomas Anderson film, There Will Be Blood. Starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, and some other people <laughs> who aren't really that important. I, there's one other guy I recognized. His kind of, par- not partner, but his... His brother guy? The yeah. guy who came Actually, to be his brother? Well, the, the guy who turned out to be his brother, not brother, fake brother, Henry. I recognized him, I'm pretty sure, from a modern show on Showtime called On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which oh. is a show with Kirsten Dunst about multi-level marketing. And Ooh, <laughs> yeah. we could get into that. And then there was one other guy, Kieran Hines, I think his name is, who's just a character actor. And you know, it was funny when I was just, <laughs> I use this word loosely, but when I was researching <laughs> for our, this podcast, movie, for our yes. podcast, I just totally it blanked on me that this was a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which it makes a lot more sense after it because he's a weirdo. Yeah, but an amazing director. But I wanted like. to, I, I just couldn't help but point out that you recently watched The Master and didn't like it very much. That's true. It's the same That's director. True. I, I'm willing to admit that he is a master of filmmaking and that I don't enjoy all of his films. But this particular film, I do Okay, well, let's see. Did you like Boogie Nights? Did I you see did it? like Boogie Nights. Yeah, Boogie yes. Nights is great. What about one. Magnolia? No, didn't like Magnolia. <laughs> you didn't like Magnolia? No. Not even when the frogs came No, my, no just not my, like, I don't like the absurd really that much. Okay. And he's pretty absurdist. And then I think he did. Um, Didn't he do that? Inherent one where the Vice. planets come together or whatever. Oh, I liked Inherent Vice. Yeah, that was a novel too, though. Yes, that wasn't. Uh, oh, so this movie, There Will Be Blood, is based on a novel or or a story by the writer Upton Sinclair called Oil. He, here, here's what I'll say. I think he has very good taste in 
literature, cinema, everything. I just think there are people uh, like my friend Kendall who just have higher tastes than I do and better understanding of these things, and mm. and that that he makes movies for those people primarily. But you know, this movie I got so. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I went uh, watching because I watched There Will Be Blood. Obviously, when it, 2007 when it came out, I would have seen it because it was. It got a lot of uh, marketing. I remember it was one movie that just was like Daniel Day Lewis is back, you know, and, after and his five was year he hiatus. Back ever? Yeah. Eh? <laughs> well, I, it's I think it's because he did a movie every five years. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. everyone was like, "Well, it's this time for him." <laughs> and so I remember when it came out, it was it, it had a lot of commercials and all that kind of stuff for it. So it was uh, it was well heralded, I guess. And so I watched it then. And I think. Probably I haven't watched it since, so it was just the second time in preparation for this podcast. And blanking on that, it was a P.T. Anderson movie. As soon as you realize it, that it is, you're like, oh, this movie makes way more sense now. <laughs> it's kind of a it's a weird movie, but comprehensible. Yeah. You know, like that's kind of, I guess, what you would say about him. Like even Boogie Nights, this is a weird movie, but everything is making sense, <laughs> you know? And then yeah. even Magnolia, I guess the end of it doesn't it, make sometimes sense. Sometimes it's but... like, wow, this pacing feels weird. Right? Yeah, it does. Because like, at like... the beginning, the pacing just feels off. You're like, oh, come on, where are we going to get to anything? Is anything going to happen? It's it's a completely unique feel. They don't even talk for the first 15 <laughs> minutes of the yeah, film. Yeah, there's a huge, huge opening segment. This movie was, I remember when we first pitched some ideas of episodes to do, this was this was your idea. So what what are some of your attachments or initial thoughts to the movie? I, well, I bring him up a lot, but Kendall kind of introduced me to movie analysis and, and thinking about symbolism in movies and not just being entertained by movies, but being thoughtful about them, which, I mean, is a great intro to this podcast <laughs> and probably why I enjoy, part of why I enjoy doing this podcast so much. So uh, this was a movie that I watched with him and then discussed with my friend Amber. We would, we'd go in for like six hours. We'd sit and drink like iced tea and French vanilla coffee at Tim Hortons and talk about the movie and all the symbols. It was incredibly nerdy, but uh, awesome. And I, I remember this was one of the first movies that I ever watched that I was blown away by the meaning behind it and the and the depth of what P.T. Anderson was trying to convey. through. Uh, it was an encounter with art as opposed to entertainment. I felt blown away by the art of this film. And Daniel Day-Lewis's acting is just incredible. The ending of the film, I think, is one of the most profound endings I've ever seen in cinema. It's certainly very iconic. Yeah. Talk about archetypes and talk about the battle of ideologies and things like that. I I love it. Yeah, mm. so I, I just see it as an epic... Uh, reflection on ideologies, not only what they do to individuals, but what they make individuals do to one another. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly a lot of kind of soft to then not so soft predatoriness going on. Yes, <laughs> in yes. this movie. Uh, yeah, I, I remember uh, it was really great rewatching it this time because it'd been so long. I basically didn't remember anything except the ending. I remember the beginning and the ending. Like, I remember the opening scene and the end scene because they're both so memorable, I guess, where he doesn't talk and he's just making his first dig at the well at the beginning and then the scene in the bowling alley, which is so much later in time, which is why the aesthetic is so jarring almost. I found the end of the movie weird because of it jumps from like 1911 to 1927. So you have 16 more years of modernity and technology in in. Daniel Plainview, the main character's house, and I remember thinking, like, whoa, like, 
this is such a crazy jump of i mean i guess that's what you can say now about our technological jumps from you know what would that have been 16 years 16 years ago 2004 is like a completely different world so even then you see it with like the house but it was a lot of fun to re-watch. I think the biggest thing that I was re-reminded of while watching this is how you can make an incredible piece of art in a movie without basically dialogue. I <laughs> like know. This I know. movie has by far the least amount of dialogue of any movie we've done on this podcast. And like probably And I think we tend to be dialogue lovers. Like I'm a oh, big for fan sure. of dialogue. Uh, we definitely can get carried away in our for our own dialogue. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and fair. so like the the kind of long, quiet, non-talking scenes with people on camera is uh, it's a, just a unique. It, it made me feel not in a way I usually do, but it was nice. I don't Would know. Would you say like kind of like meditative and, and reflective and? I don't know if those maybe, but. It was more kind of like me watching and be like, okay, what are they, what's happening? Like, like obviously yeah. something's happening because it's a movie. There's a lot of money in this movie. They made it. So it was cool because it made me, it made me feel like I had to pay more attention to what the characters were doing to get what was happening in the story. And I, and, and that's actually something I've really come to appreciate in film art. So like TV shows or movies is I love the stories that can basically never rely on exposition they don't need a newspaper to tell you what's going on in the world right like they don't need voiceover to just like here's what's happening you know this movie is like the opposite of that. <laughs> there's basically no information given to you and you really have to be like piecing it all together and paying attention to the way daniel's talking to like the townsfolk when he's in those meetings or his style of talking to particular people and then i really love like there's one scene where He's talking to these two potential buyers of his well, right? His oil well. And yet there's nothing in the movie that suggests that's who he's meeting with. It's just kind of once the dialogue starts happening in the conversation, like, oh, okay. So it's like respecting our intelligence. Yeah, to this figure movie out, respects your intelligence a lot. To figure, like, yeah, you do have to figure out what's going on all the time. And I guess I loved that because I don't know, like, I feel like exposition is kind of lazy. And so this yeah, movie's like not lazy. I love it. There's like they, they don't do any voiceover. The entire movie is pay attention because if you don't, you're going to have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I guess just a quick plot rundown. I, I, this is a pretty famous movie, so we're going to probably assume a lot of you have seen it. But if you haven't, Daniel Plainview is the guy played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and he starts the movie as a oil prospector. He strikes it big in an oil well. He adopts, or at least seems to adopt or become the guardian of this little boy whose name is H.W. I don't know if they say the full name in the movie at all, but it's somebody else's son who gets killed on the oil well. He takes him under his wing, and as they go through the years, and he becomes more prominent in the oil drilling business in California, he raises this boy who he calls his son. They learn about this huge oil reserve on this one property. They buy up a lot of property in this area. They build an oil well there shenanigans ensue there's a huge fire of the oil well which is one of the greatest scenes in movies i loved that the fire scene of the oil well well just the the, it's happening but there doesn't seem to be panic really (laughs) it's like okay yeah like yeah i'll get into daniel's kind of smiling almost i know he's i mean like he's enjoying the (laughs) thrill of he's a weirdo (laughs) yeah and so then 
there's kind of like all of these factions going on in the town and then this long lost brother of Daniel shows up and they go surveying to the coast because they want to build a pipeline and then he finds out that it's not his brother he's an imposter so he kills him but then through you know the plot circumstances he has to go show contrition and basically like humble himself to the preacher of the town who is his main enemy and so then that happens so then he can build his pipeline and then we skip ahead to the end and he's very rich in this huge house and the end of the movie is this fucking amazing scene with him and Eli Paul Dano's character who he's ruthless he gets some he gets Eli to admit that he's a fraud basically the preacher he's a total fraud and then he just murders him. <laughs> like, it's just so crazy. I'm finished. Yeah, and then the movie ends. I know that's a very thin plot rundown. I think that's because that it's not that's super... Li- well, that's the plot. Basically. Well, the plot of the movie, I think, is essentially Daniel's relationship with three major themes. Daniel's relationship with oil and like extracting it, which is more extrapolated to his relationship with the world, like the nature his relationship with humanity and his relationship with Eli. Yep. <laughs> Those On three. his son. I'd, I'd say that's a pretty big one. It becomes big. It, it kind of seems more like it's part of the relationship with humanity. I guess it's like three and a half. The scene with his son at the end is hugely impactful. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, no, but then he's say got four. Like, that he like yeah, the hearing stuff. On the, so his son also yeah. loses his hearing. He becomes deaf because of an explosion during the fire. So anyway. That's the plot rundown. The opening scene. This is so great, though. Why don't you just... You set the stage for us, David, of this opening scene, because it's one of the greatest, I think, in cinema, and then I I have a thought about it, too, but I want to... Okay, so basically, our opening scene, we have this guy digging in in the dirt. It's essentially just a guy all by himself, man against nature, in a desolate wasteland. And there's a couple of things I love this about this. The first is... There are things to love about Daniel, even though he seems like he's a completely horrible person, right? And I think it's that he has this tenacity and this this focus that he can get things done, right? He's and a, a go get it. He's a go getter, go get it done. And he's kind of like, well, I think that in this movie he is a symbol of capitalism. Like he's essentially supposed to be the. Symbol I have made of, those notes. <laughs> he's supposed to be the symbol of capitalism. And at the beginning, we see kind of the admirable side of capitalism it's basically a guy risking it all basically taking a heap of all his winnings and risking it on one turn of pitch and toss <laughs> to see whether or not he's he can win and that there's just these rough men but not rough in the crude or anything sense just like men who have they've gone up against the world and they've shown their metal and, and there's enough and they ba- and he basically over the course of this 15 minutes of the beginning, we see his discovery of oil. Mm-hmm. And then we see these ancient, well, it feels like ancient ways of extracting it, like with a bucket that he's pouring into like yeah. a whole Doesn't a he find bond. gold first? I think he finds gold, which allows him to buy like that area, I yes. guess, and hire yes. people. And then they find oil. And then they find oil. Yeah, which is cool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah like- it's like money than mm-hmm. a new kind of money because yeah. i mean essentially energy is a new is basically oh, yeah. a new form of money which is another thing i just the symbolism in this movie i could talk about it for probably ever what fascinates me about the beginning is he's got this partner like you could tell he's actually pretty friendly with this guy and like I, essentially this is his friend his only friend who just dies and obviously 
that guy's son. So we don't know what happens to that guy's wife, but we know that, that that guy's son, Daniel, takes him on as his own son and treats him as his own son. But there's always this kind of he's using the boy to, to <laughs> kind of sh- to portray a certain image to the world. But I think there's something even deeper than that, and it's that that's his last connection to this what's seemingly throughout the movie his last friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like his last connection to humanity. Yes, and that death scene is really jarring. Like, oh there's yeah, blood spatter oh, and like, and it's you brutal. feel that death because you've been waiting for something to happen for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and that's a long time in a movie. <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly dead. There's no meaning given to it. There's nothing. It just moves on. Yeah, I guess like from the most macro perspective, one of the great contributions of this movie is the portrait of the competent misanthrope. That's kind of what Daniel is. And H.W., the son, is like the last connection to his not being totally misanthropic, I guess. Like there's like, with the boy, there's still the element of, oh, okay, here's something I care about. It does seem like, like you're right, like he cares about his son, who he adopts. But that's why the end of the movie is so... I guess it like it makes it complete almost because the last person he severs ties with is his son. Yeah. You know, which and so then there's nothing left to care about basically, which probably leads into why he has no problem just killing Eli as well, you know? Yeah. But I loved this one part. I just noticed it when it was going through. He's blowing a hole, right? He, yeah. he he's using dynamite early on in the movie to blow a hole in the thing. And he lights the dynamite before he takes his tools up, right? And so the tools get stuck. So like his pickaxe, shovel, whatever else he's using, he's got like a rope in a bucket to pull it up. And then when he, and and I can't remember if they get blown up or not, if he gets it out, I think they get blown up. Then when he's going down the ladder, he doesn't test the The rungs of the ladder. So the one breaks and he falls probably 20, 25 feet and appears to at least if he doesn't break his leg, it severely injures Poor man, it. and he's dragging himself dragging away himself, right? in, in the middle of nowhere. And so then I just made me think like it's always better to go a bit slower from a cost-benefit analysis. And I think this really ties in well to his character later in the movie because we see what happens to Daniel when he's trying to take some shortcuts. Yeah, every time he tries to take a shortcut. <laughs> right? That's uh, true. Like at the beginning, that shortcut of, oh, okay, well... I'm not going to waste the minute and a half to two minutes it would take to, before I light the dynamite, going up the well, pulling all my tools out to make sure they're out, then going back down, then lighting it. I'm just going to light it and take it. Like, that's a shortcut in preparation and in execution of a task. And he pays the price for that. It's a shortcut. It's a very short shortcut, but it's still symbolically real to not test the rung (laughs) of the ladder when he's going down. And... Interestingly, these problems get compounded. He's impatient to get down the ladder because his tools, right? Right. So like the compounding effect of his impatience and his frustration through his shortcuts lead him to having an injured leg. And, you know, I mean, obviously in that environment, death is never far away from a person who there's no other people around. He's <laughs> in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, it could be right? anything. It could be and a I just rattlesnake. Loved, or... I loved how... The rest of the movie, there were kind of no half measures anymore with Daniel. Now, he's ruthless in his execution of his mandate, but I just thought that it was so interesting how what I picked out of this was, yeah, like due diligence is so crucial to 
tasks, jobs, everything. Doing shortcuts is maybe one of top three temptations of life. <laughs> I, I think, you know? Yeah. And so I, I love when a movie or a story can give a nod to that, you know? Shortcuts are... There's, because they're so tantalizing. They're right in front of you. Like, oh, yeah, you know what? I could totally light this dynamite and get out of here with these tools. Yeah, because he would have had to go back up, get yeah. his tools out, then go down, yeah. light But I it. bet you when he's lying at the bottom of the well with a broken leg, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. <laughs> no, no. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I see and, what you're saying. And so like, the foresight that comes with a kind of maturity, I guess, I have to say, I feel like not taking shortcuts in things I want to do has been one of the best self-improvements I've ever made in my life from, let's say, when I was a lot, I don't know, even eight to 10 years ago, I just couldn't, I get bogged down in the details of having to get everything done. And now I guess I've had enough life experience to be like, oh, you know what? I don't want to be lying at the bottom of the pit with a broken leg. So I'm going to go do this extra, these extra tasks because it's just not worth it if the bad stuff happens, you know? I don't know. I really, that is not something I'd seen at all. And I love it because I we see that every time he takes a shortcut in the movie, like when he doesn't buy the bandy track, he's just like, whatever, we'll get it later. Mm-hmm. Then it causes a big problem. Yeah. And when he... The tract of land, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. when he doesn't, you know, maybe take care of the, the oil situation, there's a big explosion, right? Because there's candles and stuff there. And it, he's not thinking of safety or, you know... When he doesn't have proper safety precautions and that guy just dies. Remember? Yeah. And that's working on it. Like the, the bit falls and just hits well, him. Well, I head. did want to ask you about that stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> and so we see that he is taking shortcuts and there's always these consequences for it. So, yeah. And it was so funny at the end of that scene though, because he's dragging himself. And I couldn't help but notice he's basically, I, I can't, you don't know for sure. It looks like his leg is broken, it's certainly not usable. And yet, he doesn't go to the doctor first. He goes to get his gold checked first. <laughs> yeah. I, so I was like, this is like a perfect lead into a character because now we know that he's probably like he's a go getter. He's impetuous a little bit. He's also like, he cares more about figuring out this gold than his own leg health. Yeah. You know? he, like money's what matters to him. He sees that yeah. as how you keep score and it's the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. So I guess. You brought it up, so we might as well just talk about it now. I was going to ask about it later, but one of the major components, again, the like social economic components of this is like this is like a movie kind of of burgeoning capitalism, and basically a corporation or an incorporated. Like I think he has his own company, yeah, but not really with safety regulations in no, place. No, this is like this is the wild, wild west yeah. of the oil And discovery. so I wanted, because again, you'll know a lot more about this than I will, like what is your, th- what are your thoughts on, like is that part of the government's mandate is safety regulations ah, for work sites? This is a, this is because a great question. <laughs> I know you have an interesting relationship with government. <laughs> yes. So watching this movie, I'll phrase it to you like this, watching this movie made me think like, okay, this makes me feel like there does need to be a third-party regulator going on here because why would Daniel be incentivized yeah, does, enough does he care if to people keep die, the guys right? at the bottom of the well from not having these huge metal spikes fall on them? Yeah, okay, so uh, safety regulations. It's complicated, right? Because government 
this this is what always I'll, I'll take Alberta for example because I know this one particularly. So up near where I l- was born and raised in, in Alberta, there was a farming family whose whose three daughters died because they were playing in a grain bin and they got sucked under into the canola and and died. And it's horrific, right? Just a terrible loss for the community. They just they just uh, well they suffocated because uh, yeah. basically they yeah got sucked under. Ugh which is horrible. And at the time, the government that was in power wanted to do something. And like, you have to think about it. When you're a um, government and you hear, and there's a public outcry, and basically the public sees a tragedy, mm-hmm. they want their leaders to do something about it. Yeah, it's and, human nature. Yeah, and so what essentially they did was they made it a lot harder for farms to operate. They basically said, okay, kids can't help their, their parents on the farm anymore. And they're doing it ostensibly under the idea that they're protecting the kids. I mean, it ruins the whole farming way of life. And it's not like people have been farming and, and kids have been helping on the farm <laughs> since the dawn of mankind. Well, and right? our, our mothers certainly yes. included in that. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, both of our mothers, well, obviously they were sisters, but they, they, they grew up on a farm and loved that time, I think. Sure. In the pursuit of trying to do something good, which was protect people, they actually took away freedom from a lot of people. Right. Uh, and now I'll bring up another example of an issue that I have with, with safety regulations. So one of the main themes of our podcast that's really stuck with me, and I hope it's stuck with our listeners, is the idea of the soft-hearted but hard-headed person versus the hard-headed, hard-hearted person. And the hard-headed, hard-hearted person is going to manipulate things for their benefit. And I think Daniel Plainview is a really good example of mm-hmm. a hard-headed, hard-hearted person. Yeah. That's why this why I wanted to bring this up. A person like that um, would use safety regulations to keep competition out. Okay, they would make it so difficult. A really good example of this is roofing in Ontario because there have been injuries, and you know, and the government points and says, "Oh, those people fell off the roof, so we have to do something about it." They make you pay essentially a tax called WSIB, mm. uh, which costs you thousands of dollars a month for every employee. Which means if you're a small startup roofing company with, say, two employees and you're only getting a few roofs a month, you're not making any money. You're not just not making money because you're paying WSAB. You have to pay wages, you have to pay materials, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is these large roofing companies who can, who can eat costs like that because they have volume – lobby for these laws <laughs> so, it's a so that they don't have any competition well okay so, so in that specific case then couldn't you have a staggered buy-in like if your company makes this amount this is how much you have to pay into the overall i guess it's like an insurance fund basically yeah for the I safety mean, of your uh, employees uh, yeah yeah theoretically you could but then also i guess to, uh, to a degree you're punishing success Right, so if you become a good roofing company, suddenly you're making less because you're a good roofing company. Well, I guess then it it wouldn't. Well, I don't know. Maybe there'd be a more fair way to measure it. I think maybe it, it should money. be per roof or something. Yeah, like I think it should be a piecework thing. So it's like everyone pays the same amount, but it's not so, large. Okay, so then I but I want to make this because that's a good example in terms of like okay, well, where do we put the dial here? But what's interesting about there will be blood is that there there's zero safety yes, regulation. Yes. So well, even uh, when you, I think the thing that kind of blew me away is they've just got the oil sitting there in an open like pool <laughs> yeah. on the ground. Yeah, that's or, part or of when the, it's coming out of the, that oh that beautiful scene where it's 
coming out of that pipe. Oh, yeah. Just into a puddle, basically, it's on the so, ground. So oh. cool. Well, because it just does seem to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm only half devil's advocate here because there's a part of my I guess kind of liberal sentiment here where when I watch those two guys die at the bottom of the well because of just human error I'm like it doesn't have to be like that I don't think you know there's got to be a way where we can get the oil out of the ground without people having these massive huge chunks of metal and timber fall on them to their death right now what other than the (laughs) benevolence of an employer, let's say you have an employer who's not like that, like Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Does the public not have an interest in keeping these people alive on their work sites? Yes. No, I, I think that. So that's the thing. I think safety is essential and and should be promoted. And how um, do you incentivize it? Then? How do you in, instead I, of I think regulation? You, I think exactly. you in, yeah, I think you incentivize it by I think the best way to incentivize safety is basically to say, you know, you're going to be shut down if someone dies. Mm-hmm. Not you're going to be taxed or we're going to like make you pay. <laughs> make it more black and white. Yeah. It's, then... it's a set because the, the way they do it now is being used by the major companies to keep the little guys out. Sure. Instead of it should be, you better keep people safe or we won't let you practice. Like, right. That's just going to be it. Mm-hmm. Like, so you're going to have to do the safety stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, not we're going to find another way to tax you. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah. That makes sense too then because it strikes me that and this is another theme of the movie, just the harshness of the working conditions at the time. Because I'm someone who reads or learns a little bit about workers' rights movements of like the late 20th century and then like the 20s and 30s, who, when I read what they're talking about, they seem super common sense to me. Not stuff so much like you read now about (laughs) labor movements or unions or stuff like that. But like, if you think about child labor or being forced to work 16 18 hours a day in relatively unsafe conditions in factories and stuff like that when i'm reading about people standing up for those kind of people i'm like yeah of course those laws seem so important one of the things i like about you and your political thinking is how good you are at admitting to things that maybe happened on the other side of the aisle but you think are good for people yeah oh you know okay, and I, so and let's, I think yeah, let's get into workers let's get into workers rights here because i think workers rights are incredibly important the thing is there's a there's oh there's like four or five factors that we kind of have to address on this point the first <laughs> is workers rights were atro- so atrociously bad that it was absolutely necessary that there were right. these groups that came up people w- were being forced to work 16 hour days every day of the week they mm-hmm. got no they got no weekends they yeah. got no holiday and that wasn't actually good for productivity like this is the thing science <laughs> began to show you that well what actually if you give them a weekend they work harder and they're more loyal and yeah. and they're less miserable and tired mm-hmm. right but also we have to take into account the rapid pace at which technology has taken out the need for that amount of work back then i mean even looking at where he's basically at the very beginning, he's using a pickaxe to try to like dig into the earth <laughs> yeah. to get some gold. Yeah. Like, yeah, it starts in eighteen ninety eight. This level of technology is is sad. <laughs> like, and nothing like that would ever happen. You would, and also with the technology we have, safety is much higher. There are obviously very still very risky jobs in the world, but not nearly as many as there were back then because mm-hmm, yeah. you just didn't require the same human 
just raw labor to get things done. Yeah. So so that's one thing. I mean, we could go into all five if we want. But uh, <laughs> well, what do you think are the major advances in worker safety that have happened since a time like there will be blood that have been true and important to like what part of them are technology based and what part of them are like human attitude based okay so i think the biggest advancement that we've seen is that the workers rights movement made people accept laborers as humans even laborers accepting themselves as humans and i'll go back to charles dickens on this to kind of i was hoping you would (laughs) outline it when you look at the difference in class between david copperfield and say emily or the or peggotty they don't see them they see the upper class as superior Mm -hmm. they actually view, view them as more valuable yeah and that was essentially i think the mindset mm-hmm. and whatever i may think of marx and, and communism seeing people as equal is actually an older idea than that yeah but one that had not penetrated the society's consciousness on a hierarchical scale mm-hmm. right maybe and probably all, not on an ec- economic one and yes. definitely not on an economic one this is the other uh, miracle of capitalism like this is what capitalism gave us was the opportunity to lift these people out of poverty and then make them realize, wait a second, I want rights too. Like, <laughs> there's no way I'm just slaving away for these capitalists, basically. I don't want to work Saturday. Yeah, I don't want to work. <laughs> I want to go home. Yeah. And so I think the greatest thing that it did was it took an idea, which I argue is a Christian idea, of uh, human dignity, the dignity of all, slave morality, as Nietzsche called it, that the slaves are valuable too, essentially. Mm-hmm. Took that idea, which never really got any major traction on an economic level it took that idea and brought it into societal consciousness and like enshrined it yeah and then probably in the 20th century you started getting the actual laws the laws, countries catching up the with movement, those sentiments right? yeah people literally saying like strikes saying okay we won't work for you then mm-hmm. like peasants didn't strike because you killed them yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? good point then that had to do with not just laws but people viewing humans as having dignity yeah and like i think that's part of what brought the civil rights movement and all a lot of the of the most wonderful things when it comes to freedom mm-hmm. and individual dignity have come from this kind of uprising right. of people saying no yeah we we get you know and i mean you see the crazy otherworldliness almost of it in this movie where these guys just work on this well and they're just beside moving fan belts and moving gears all the time and oil everywhere where like one slip and they're dead yeah. <laughs> basically in yeah. any direction. And it's kind of a weird time warp in that sense to be watching and like, it's kind of like a similar, I mean, it's a, it's a little different psychologically because of the natural human fear of heights. But like when you see about the iconic uh, photo, the, the kind of sitting on the beams, sitting on the beams, you know, like, 50 stories above new york oh. during the 30s with no i don't know about harnesses. you those, those freak me out oh well, yeah i guess we talked about how that would freak yeah you out yeah, too. yeah and, yeah, and yeah. so like i put the way that the workers on the oil well at least in a similar vein to those kind of guys who it's a good recurring reminder i guess of it's a tangible progress made i feel but this kind is of not just an old our- thing like i mean we're living in alberta right now and i was raised in alberta like i grew up with guys who knew guys who died on the rigs or who lost arms yep. or fingers mm-hmm. uh like and that was pretty common well and i remember a friend of our mom's her husband was killed on his farm by the farm equipment yeah <laughs> you know yeah. like i was like 
something that it spins around really fast and a part of his clothing got caught in it kind of thing and one of one of my buddy's uncles three or four days after retirement uh his tractor just flipped and he just died he was driving in it he was driving it and i've i don't know the exact details but like it was horrible well yeah i guess it's like a more it's another shot of gratitude to think well we live in an era where safety at work is actually (laughs) now you can argue it's gone too far Yes. The pendulum yeah. in one direction. Which I think I would argue that maybe it has a little bit. But then it's hopefully the dialectic of that can stay open so that you can massage back into a working equilibrium, let's say, about that. But I think it's just cool to see where it was. The danger without any hint of thinking, oh, it shouldn't be like this. <laughs> you know? But and here's another example of how this movie is incredibly nuanced on the character development. Because even though it doesn't seem like... Daniel Plainview really cares about his employees that much. He wants to give them a funeral. Yeah. If they were religious, right? And he cares enough about that that he goes to the funeral. Well, right? And <laughs> that does lead into my one of my next big yeah. thoughts on the movie too, cuz there's so many cool little things about his in, in in the archetype of his relationship to humanity. One of the big notes I made in this movie is the businessman's weird relationship with other cultural institutions, like the church. Yes, yes, yes. So, because the church is outside of his purview, he doesn't really know what to do with it. And this isn't just a businessman thing. Like, this can be, it's almost kind of like when you come up onto the stranger. <laughs> like, what? And so, obviously, Daniel lives in a town that's very religious, and Eli, his rival, is the preacher. So, you know. There's hidden incentives in Eli to make Daniel look bad in front of the town's eye. And so is Daniel a Christian? Does that matter? Like he's a little bit cynical about it. Even in the moments where he's not trying to pretend or be something for the people, the thing about the church, the church scenes with Daniel are so interesting is that the impression that I get is that he doesn't know what to do with cultural institutions of a society that don't have anything to do with him, but are still really important to other people. And I think that this is a weirdly common experience. It's like, well, what do you do with things that other people care about that you don't even understand? <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and that's something that's super hard for da- uh, Daniel in Yeah, he doesn't seem movie. able to do it at all. He, well, he's, he's not even able to deal with pe- others. Like, I think that's essentially him. He can't deal with the other. Yeah, and he, well, he deals with it, as I yeah. say in quotations, by kind of going through the motions of like, oh, having a religious funeral for his people. But like, it's kind of like he's... <laughs> I mean, he's not a good PR person exactly, but it's like he's doing the best that he can as, as a form of PR by pretending to care about what all of the good church-going people of the town think about him. Yeah, being a family man. Yeah, being a family man. Know, so he's got he's a got child the, of these hills. He's got that level of facade, which is interesting because I think that that's a social phenomenon. But what what I think is the existential phenomenon that I'm trying to trying to tease out here is that. Like, he doesn't know what to do with the church because it's out, like, the things that he's in control of in his purview, he is fucking on top of them, right? Like, he he knows how to dig wells. He knows how to get employees. He knows how to to build pine. He knows how to survey. He knows how to trick people. And he knows how to keep his cards close to his chest so he always wins. Yes. (laughs) But he doesn't get the church and everybody else cares about the church. So what's he going to do? And I just feel, not about churches specifically, but I remember cultural walls that are seemingly up sometimes like the first time you come across something you just don't know but other people care about you know have you ever had an experience like that where obvious experiences are going to another country 
seeing them engage in a, in a card game or a culture activity that you don't know anything about. Like, you're just like, what's happening here? But even things in your own culture are just like, I have to say, like, I just don't get, and this could be a generational thing. I do not, the kids at work, the teens, they will watch someone on YouTube for hours talking about a different video on YouTube. <laughs> right? Like I was watching the, right. I, was, I was working this teen night program the other night and there was 10 of them, 13, 14, 15 year olds watching a video of a lady watch a video. What? <laughs> and then talking about that video. And like, this is a specific example, but like, that's a cultural thing that yeah. I'm just on the outside of that I don't get. Yeah, actually, I, like, <laughs> you have you heard of, who's that guy who's uh, PewDiePie? Have you heard of PewDiePie? I have heard of PewDiePie. Uh, the only reason I've heard of PewDiePie is because uh, he likes Elon Musk and, you know. <laughs> Wasn't there a lot entered. of controversy with him one time? Yeah, no, I think it's the other guy. I think that's the other guy, not PewDiePie. Yeah, that's a that's a, a world I don't understand. But I th- I feel like a lot of my life has been that, honestly, because I was homeschooled like you were, but I never went to school until university, mm. and so then I had to like get into the world of university, and I was like, oh, there are so many cultural ways that people interact with one another that I'm just unaware of, and in a sense, while I do think of myself as as decently intelligent, I always felt really slow socially, not dumb so socially, and I could almost always make good relationships one-on-one, but I struggled with group dynamics. And I remember I was actually my 20, uh, it would have been my 27th birthday was the first time in my life that, and I, and I, I got a little bit emotional about it was the first time in my life. I felt like accepted and understood a group (laughs) and was a part of all the jokes and like was there Mm -hmm. for the fully. And probably uh, if I'm really psychoanalyzing myself, why I love politics so much is that really it's it's kind of a really big nerdy family who all care about the same things <laughs> that almost nobody else cares sure. about, right? It's like your tribe. It's my tribe. No, for sure it's my tribe. So I guess I would say that yes, so you relate to that. I relate to that a lot, and I I kind of I don't relate to Daniel Plainview in that I think he kind of there's a hate in there's me. a there's a part of like the way you phrased your experience, you clearly had a desire for that thing yes right yes. like it was even though you were on the outside of it you wanted it you and with daniel in the movie he's just miffed I, the way I, I guess the way i would put it is that when he's on his time he is competent upon competent he's on the job which he basically always is <laughs> he's in his element you know he's in the zone but with other this other cultural institution of the church, whenever he's at the church or around Eli or like having to be placating them, he's not on his time, right? He's on somebody else's time. When he's on someone else's time, he is totally miffed about why other people are caring about it. Why, what He doesn't even know what he's supposed to do. <laughs> well, know? yeah, and he's not in control. And he feels like an alien. Yeah, and I think for him... I mean, this is a man who's, you know, built everything he has from, like, the sweat of his hand and, you know, sweat of his brow. He has a huge, huge control problem. And I think, actually, that's why he sends his son away. Mm. Is because when his son is deaf, his son is right in his face, something he can't control. Right. That is changing his life, and he can do nothing about it. And it's kind of like a constant reminder or a symbol, I guess you could say, 
of the fact that he actually has no control. And this is the great tragedy of Daniel Plainview. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is horribly tragic. I think like one of the more tragic uh, figures in cinema. But the, <laughs> the tragedy of his entire life is he's dedicated himself to nothing. Yeah. And everything that he's done and everything that he's built is meaningless and, and leaves him with nothing. Yeah. I mean, not meaningless in the in the sense that, you know, society needs wealth creation, but it's meaningless to him. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't care. This is not a laudable thing to care about, but it seems like he cares about winning. Yo, yeah. You know, like, yeah, he, but like, it's got that line. what? Just beating. Yes. Beating the spirit out of other people, and especially his competitors, whether it be in oil specific or people vying for something out of him. He literally defeats it in Henry when he kills him and then figuratively and then literally does it to Eli and he figuratively does it to his son the main people that he has relationships with his goal is to beat them and beat their spirits and so I mean I never really thought talking about there will be blood might give me some positive reifying some things about my own life that I think I've gotten better at but with that example of the YouTuber that I gave earlier, like if that had happened earlier in my life, I would have put up a stink about it. Or I would have been like teasing them about it or like, why are you guys like this? This is so stupid. And I think one of the great advancements I've been able to make mentally in my life is to re- to reconcile myself to the fact that there's just so many things or institutions or entities in the world that other people care about that I either don't care about or don't even understand. (laughs) Yeah. And yet tomorrow still comes and the day goes on and I still am free to go pursue the things I do get and understand. And I think it's an interesting sociological dynamic in There Will Be Blood because Daniel can't really escape the church exactly because it's a basically, it's a cultural institution has a monopoly (laughs) on people like everybody in the town is involved in this so he has to pay some sort of lip service to it maybe what he really wants is to just ignore it (laughs) like that would be his preference but in the balancing act of living you do have to go into places where you're you don't really know what's happening or you don't understand why people care about and then i just i don't know for some reason that stuck out to me is like he's just so out of his skin when it comes to these other cultural institutions and he just wants to be back in his wheelhouse which is again that power thing or that control do, thing do you, you talked think about. I, li- I like this and i want to kind of dig into it further do you think i think it's a sign of maturity and but not just mis- maturity in the i guess in the traditional sense of the word but kind of mental advancement mental development to be interested in things that don't inherently interest you Interested would be the wrong word. I would say curious. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe curious about what interests other people. Oh, yeah, for sure. To me, the whole Socratic asking questions about stuff is the basis for basically any development yeah. <laughs> when you're with another person. And so I would ask the kids, like, well, what do you... <laughs> the thing is, with, with kids and teens, they just they don't really want to talk about it in a group. Like, maybe one-on-one they would, but like they're just like, shut up, we're well, watching this. Don't well, ask me questions. <laughs> like, Because I'd want us like, well, w- what is interesting? It sounds sarcastic when I ask it. I'd have to phrase it or use my tone of voice. Like, what is, what is interesting about watching someone talk about another video? Like, what's different about that than just watching the video or watching the person talk about I mean, I guess a podcast is kind of like that. <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> maybe I've hit 
humble pie pay dirt there. But that's amazing. But the the thing is though, like in this specific video, this lady she was talking about like these animated Japanese videos. There's no dialogue. There's nothing, and she was just like, "Oh, I can't believe that happened." Oh, did you think? I didn't think that would happen. Like it, it wasn't a very substantive comment, <laughs> right? And so, like all of it, I didn't get. And so, more broadly, I'm trying to. This is a huge cultural phenomenon that I don't get because I'm not of the generation that is interested in the YouTubers of the world, right? Because I was 18 when YouTube came out, so I was too old to kind of start caring about people who made their living talking on YouTube. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> and I think so, it's almost like a. I don't really understand it either, so this is a shot in the dark. But my guess would be it's a different form of celebrity in the sense that their celebrity just comes from their personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it actually has almost nothing to do with any talent that they might. I mean, their talent is commenting on things. Yeah. And and, like people feel like empathy. Mm -hmm. They engage their audience, engage their audience in such a way that the audience almost puts themselves into that person's interaction. And and that makes sense too. And I mean, it's probably. It's a form of reading a novel in the sense (laughs) you put yourself in the shoes of the character, or at least I try to when I read it. So it's like, I think it might just be a modern version of that, but I mean, and, like and I, said, I imagine the dark. too for teenagers, it's a form of escapism from their parents. And I definitely had that kind of thing when I was a teen. My escapism was much more though in the realm of like video games or <laughs> music. I knew I wouldn't be allowed to listen to or movies. I knew I wouldn't be allowed to watch. And I think maybe with the ease of technology now, YouTube is kind of like the ease of YouTube probably contributes to its popularity. Uh, Clearly it does. Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) Jordan Peterson talks a lot about how we've basically encountered a a new revolution in, in communication and education and curiosity and the fact that for the first time in human history, it's just as easy to and and permanent to mm-hmm. communicate. I mean, like what we're doing right now. Yeah, this was not possible. Well, maybe we're talking our way through to <laughs> arguing against my own problem. <laughs> but now talking about this, it strikes me that one of the down, like the huge downside for Daniel about not, as it were, getting the church or not understanding it, is that it's a more impoverished life that he doesn't understand. It's one thing, I think, to not understand something and discredit it. It's different to like learn about it and then decide you're not for yeah. it. You yeah. know? And we, the thing, this is another super interesting thing about this movie, is that we don't get Daniel Plainview's background. So we don't know why he hates humanity no. <laughs> like this. We just know that he does. And so it'd be maybe <laughs> the sequel <laughs> will tell us why, right? I think it's it's a good... It's a good snapshot. Is there going to be a sequel? That I'm no, 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 no. Oh. I was just making a joke. <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry. I was like, what? No. But I think, yeah, there's a, it's a good snapshot of, oh, okay. There are different ways to react to things in the world that you don't really know about or understand. And I think the way Daniel does it is either cynical or he's just totally bamboozled by it. And I just think neither of those are the most aspirational or 
even life-affirming ways of going about learning about other things. <laughs> so maybe I need to learn that to myself about YouTubers with the yeah. kids at work. I'll I mean, go, it's, I next mean, time I, I see them, I'm going to ask them about it. Figure out how to ask them without being like, what do you find interesting about that? One of my favorite questions, so I've never really actually been into video games that much, besides I did have a StarCraft phase. But talking to my friends about what they loved about a video game or the story and getting them to talk about it and watching them light up, that's one, that was one of my favorite things to do ever. And if you can figure out why people love something and then then they'll explain it to you and then you'll just know more. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then and knowing more, the more at least in my experience, the more you know, the easier it is to interact with different people because you're just like, Oh, you're interested in this. Well, I know this about this. And you can ask at least you can ask good questions. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Ask better questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel great... doesn't really ask any questions. No. Movie. No, he does not really. He's, he's supremely incurious. He he, he kind well, of feels well, like he knows I everything. Say. I think a person like Daniel, and this happens to people all the time, um, they become good at a thing, and then that becomes their whole world. They shut up themselves off from the rest of the world because suddenly they feel safe in the thing that they're good at. And I think in the case of Daniel, he became good at something rather early because mm-hmm. he seems to be a young man when he first discovers it. Like not, not super young, maybe but, late twenties. Yeah. So, and he's kind of at the top of his, he's at the top of his game in that thing. It's like athletes who are really good in high school and then never are good again. And that's their glory. It peaks or too early. They peaks, well, but why can't they change their life? Right. Mm-hmm. Why, why can't, because they're not, willing to overcome the fact that maybe that i and maybe they've been conditioned in a certain way to think it's a lack of self knowledge uh in that being willing to be bad at something might be one of the greatest social gifts you can have (laughs) yeah all right you mentioned this a bit earlier about this guy william bandy and how he doesn't buy bandy's land is the one piece of land he doesn't buy or lease early on so and it later in the movie it affects his pipeline, which is a huge plot point. And Bandy's only request to him is that he humble himself at the church, which means he has to humble himself to Eli. So my note on this didn't really pan out in the story, but I still get had an interesting thought about when because his line is when his partner says, "Oh, we need to buy this land, but this guy Bandy won't sell to us." Daniel says, "Let him wait; he'll come around." And it just kind of struck me as like, "Oh man, is this like a..." It's like a weird prisoner's dilemma slash businessman as psychologist. (laughs) Because one of the interesting, um, I bet you, this is a hypothesis, but I bet you that all of the strongest findings in psychology, all of the biases, so confirmation, availability bias, familiarity bias, once that was rolled out scientifically as like this is basically a psychological fact, probably every salesman worth their salt (laughs) <laughs> was like uh duh <laughs> yeah because you know when you're selling something to someone and i've had a i've had a job in sales too and part of if it's not stated explicitly part of what is the culture of a sales team is build rapport get around people's guards figure out how people's brain like essentially it's like a game of it's it's like a i don't know it's like an economic game of chess <laughs> essentially like how does this how do you sell something to someone well learn about all the ways that people think and then subvert them right yeah and daniel clearly shows that element of his savvy maybe more than any other in this movie where he 
goes in to all of the people he's like i'm a family man look at my son hw which again he might maybe is using cynically we don't really know it's hard to tell with the salesman aspect he's got education we're bringing you education we'll bring irrigation we'll bring you bread family business family man so he's like using all of these heuristics to get all the people who can help him on his side and then even this one with bandy was like well he'll come to us like he'll see eventually and so i don't know like because you've also spend more time with business than i have but also in sales like i i don't know like i feel like once you're out in the real world it's like psychological warfare oh <laughs> basically like well, yeah. how do we yeah how do we <laughs> this is at its crudest or least resolutionist but it's like how do we trick people into picking our thing yeah and they, and make them want it. Yes. Like, how do we create desire? How do we create attachment? How do we create loyalty? How do we? It's all about making people feel and things, yeah. staying ahead of the consumer savvy on your intentions doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe yeah. do they care or not? I'm struggling to find a question out of all this because I think there, there's so many tangents here that are super interesting. But what is your thought on like just free association on? the businessman or the salesman as psychologist. I think that particular, let's call it a game, because I think most things that humans do are games. Yeah. And then we end money. The game of life. And I think, you know, money's this kind of the scorecard in a sense, is the one of the most interesting things you can ever do, right? Because it, it, it does. People don't understand. Business really does tie together psychology, philosophy. You have to under have an understanding of philosophy to decide how you're going to do business. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, and then brand. What is a brand? A brand is an idea. You're creating an idea essentially from nothing um, when you create a brand. And then. Because then you're tapping into the association bias. Yeah. Like, okay, when I think of this, what other things do I attach to it? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, for example, I mean, I've almost never bought anything via advertising before, but somehow Facebook figured out that. I- because one, because I looked at it a little longer, not even because I clicked on it, like that's how good they are, <laughs> that this leather bag, and it, then every day, this leather bag came up on my news feed every day, and I, and I wanted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then I would click on it, I was like, should I buy it? No, this is ridiculous. Do you want to hear my joke about that? Yeah, okay. What kind of math function likes to dance? An algorithm. An algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I got that one. <laughs> good yes. job, David. <laughs> I almost never Fred get one, loose jokes. Uh, he uh, pumped his hands in the air in excitement and uh, triumph on that one. Does it make it less serious when we know that that's what's going on? No, I think it, in some ways it makes it more serious. I mean, it makes it more serious in two ways. The first way is it's like, okay, how are we going to – this is something I think government should be involved in. It's like, well, how do we make sure there's not false advertising? Sure. How do we make sure that yeah. people aren't being sucked into things and, and having things stolen from them like that they're not actually giving? Is one and thing. what counts as false advertising, because if I buy a Lexus, am I going to be as handsome and charming as Matthew McConaughey? Right. I mean... <laughs> like, is that false advertising? Am well, I going to yeah. be as interested in... Like, of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek yeah, here, yeah. but that is a... It's an inexact science. Well, are you the kind of guy who would think you'd be handsome as Matthew McConaughey? I'm the kind of guy who's never been able to afford a Lexus. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Who knows? Okay, yeah, but the other thing is that we need the, the soft-hearted hard-headed people to protect everyone else against people who are out there manipulating other people like a daniel like a daniel and 
I think an important note to make here is that I don't think businessmen are inherently that way. I think the best thing about business, in my opinion, is when you can make a deal where everybody wins mm-hmm. or you can make a product that makes people's lives better. So then I have a question for you on that. Let's say said product or service exists, and I know it does. I mean, there's many things that people care about. I notice that even with the most beneficial or important <laughs> products, the advertising for them is still, what I would say is a little sideways. You're not selling the product. You're selling the way I feel about your product. That just feels so cynical. Well, see, you know who else who agrees with you on this and refuses to do any advertising at all? I, I can I can already know. <laughs> uh, Musk, I answer. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. Here's a great example. Here's Sorry. Um, in Canada, one of the major communication conglomerates is TELUS. And they're like massive. They're so, they're so huge. They're I, like I almost, us, right? they're I, almost yeah. too big to fail. Kind of huge. So they deliver a product that everyone wants. Basically, <laughs> almost everybody would want. And essentially, their people believe they need. Yes. Uh, what are their commercials? They're cute baby animals looking for things. Now, what do cute baby animals have to do with the telecommunications company? Your guess is as good as mine. Oh, except that uh, everybody remembers these commercials, and it's like, oh, cute ba- tell us cute baby animals. Well, and I think a lot of advertising in that sense is subliminal. Like, I don't th- think I know anyone who's dumb enough to go with tell us because they have cute baby animals. Not consciously. But, but yeah, but subliminally, they're like, I have kind of a positive feeling to so, tell us. So I guess maybe to draw it back into the scientific realm here of psychology is that what is so interesting to me is that all of the biases that psychologists have found in our brains have been known maybe for centuries yeah. by people who are trying to sell them stuff yes yeah, no <laughs> you know? before people like, wrote about you it you could have saved a lot of time just go talk to the salespeople about yeah. the way the human brain works yep yeah and i think that that's just a generally a good psa is that every single thing that is coming your way is calculated in the social sphere. And what do you think about that? And what do you want knowing that that's what's happening? Yeah. Because I try to be certainly, I mean, there's no perfection in this, but I really feel like I'm pretty confident with you that advertisement doesn't work on me. Like Mm. I buy things I want, not I saw that and I maybe kind of, would like to have that well i think also maybe our personality types are more inclined towards lives of the mind as opposed to material there are people who love shopping let's say mm-hmm. and really enjoy it and mm-hmm. we both love someone very dearly who's huge into home decor we don't really give a yeah. shit about home I, decor. yeah i guess it's probably right? also an inclination think, thing like i don't think advertising works as well on people like us because we just don't want as many things yeah Right? Like, That's true. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, it's product dependent, I guess, but part of the salesman or the businessman's, it's great in the movie because Daniel is ultimately comes at a loss out of this, is that the the risk you're running is that the person you're dealing with is your equal in these things. And he knows what you're doing or she knows what you're doing and can play the game better than you. Or has a different interest well, that you're not like pandering you said, that's to. That's the chess game you were yeah. describing. Yeah, right? and so in this chess game, Daniel loses the move or loses the game to Bandy because Bandy has a different prerogative than what yeah, Daniel his, assumes. His first principles are different. Yeah, and so 
that I guess is the glaring blind spot. But see, of he's the but the type of business. Weird part man. is Bandy's also controlled by somebody, yeah. somebody else, because someone else is on top of that hierarchy. Well, to tie back to our first point about Daniel, then this is where you do due diligence on a potential client. Yes. Right? Like, Daniel doesn't even learn a thing about Bandy. <laughs> it's not even that he doesn't just go talk to him about his land. No. <laughs> he doesn't do any research. Doesn't even remember he exists. So, he this is a, well, he takes that shortcut, like yeah. you said, right? So, it's not really a great callback because you mentioned it earlier. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't even have a final thought on this. It's just, like, it's something that's so striking. It's like, holy crap. Now that I'm thinking about it, salesmen and saleswomen knew about these psychological biases way before they had names in science. <laughs> yes, yes. Humans uh, are very in, in, innovative little creatures. They're innovative and predictable. Yeah. That's what's so great about them. I know. <laughs> hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening. Because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. His misanthropy, I want no one else to succeed. I see the worst in people. I guess probably the next huge section of the movie we should talk about is his relationship with Henry. Henry shows up about probably halfway to two-thirds of the way through the movie. Claims to be Daniel's brother. Daniel's skeptical at first. Uh, Henry shows him a letter. Basically, he convinces Daniel that he is. So uh, Daniel trusts him. And Henry is really the only person in the movie that appears that Daniel trusts. And he gets him on his side. And when he says, I see the worst in people, he really seems relieved to unburden to Henry. But then when Henry, ultimately it's revealed that Henry is a con man, or like that might be putting it a bit strong. He's just someone who saw an opportunity to pretend to be because he knew Daniel's actual brother. Daniel's actual brother died. Well, at least he says he knew his brother. Well, he knew... He has a journal, though. Yeah. For one way or another, Henry knew about Daniel Plainview, knew he had a brother, and knew that he could slide in there and pretend to be him. And so, really, the only joy that Daniel seems to get at any time in the movie is when he's hanging out with Henry. And Henry even goes with him to meet these, like, I don't know, oil tycoons, I guess, who are willing to buy... Daniel's well for a million dollars for a million dollars in which back then what was that 1911 money which is nuts <laughs> yeah and so Henry is like his constant like the one thing tethering him to humanity without being this like total misanthrope and so then that's what makes Henry's betrayal so much worse and then he kills Henry out of principle basically and so all of that to like demonstrate I think that that is the final domino uh, no, sorry. H.W. becoming his competitor is the final domino. But that what happens in 1927. In 1911, what Henry's role in the movie is is to show us what Daniel actually thinks about things. And we only get that because he opens up to Henry. And then Henry, Henry ends up being 
what Daniel hates. Yeah. <laughs> and probably actually the best example of the tip of the mountain of what Daniel hates about Amanda. He just hates people because of things that they'll do, like pretend and lie to be someone's brother to get money. <laughs> yeah. Like, and the thing is, he hates that people, I mean, and I think that he's used to this because it's probably happened to him a lot, but what he hates most about humanity is something he seems to have encountered himself, which is that they are incapable of creating what he's capable of. So mm -hmm. they are far beneath him on his value hierarchy. Yeah. And yet they want what he has. I think this seems to be what he really hates and despises about Eli. Mm -hmm. Is he sees someone who is incapable Total of getting what he has. Yeah. And yet who's slimily trying to trick. He hates tricksters. Because honestly, it seems like his fundamental value is competition. And what Henry and Eli are trying to do is break the rules. Mm-hmm to get ahead and this is a man who must have probably dragged himself a very long distance with a broken leg just to, <laughs> like he obviously is yeah. not afraid of hard work not afraid of pain and and smart yeah so there's the obvious hatred that daniel is gonna have boiling up which is why he kills henry and obviously it reaffirms his bias and prejudice against humanity basically do you think though maybe at a higher order level part of what henry and Eli, Eli would function in this role too, I think. Both of them, what's so intolerable maybe to Daniel is that he actually does need other people to grow to the level that he wants. So even just literally speaking, like Daniel can't get a certain volume out of the oil without other people helping him do it. Now he employs them and he pays them. So it's still, he's the, the CEO but literally speaking, he's still, to get to the high enough peak, he is still dependent on other people in some manner. And I wonder if that aspect also is eating away at Daniel, that not only does he hate humanity, but he needs their help to get to the levels he wants to be at. <laughs> you know? Yeah. like Because then you have to target some of that disgust at your own self. You know, and I mean, like, this is a, a fascinating social and sociological fact about the history of people is like how growth really has been figuring out how to get more people to do what you want. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it's hard in the movie to know for sure because the motif of the movie is Daniel's hatred of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like how he has to like basically. Well, Keep and, it bottled and, and, in the yeah, whole and then, time. And then, and then those moments And it comes out those few times. Yes. And it explodes hard. And we're not really given a sense. I wonder what Daniel would do with the argument. And I guess this is an argument made even today to CEOs about this. Like, yeah, but what about everybody who helped you get there? Yeah, well, Obama made. Yeah. That was like a big part of the Obama and campaign. And what does that do to someone with a potential case of egomania? <laughs> like yeah, Daniel. I don't think they like it very much. No, they don't like it. Much. How could Daniel be fair? then about all of that right and still I have mean, a despising of someone like, because why i think daniel is fundamentally mistaken in this movie is because he lets the lowest rung count as humanity like he lets the elis and then the henrys be shining star representations of, of the what, whole of thing. the whole species are like and i just think that that's weird why wouldn't he hold up like his friend 
Yeah, who's with him the whole time. Who's with him the whole time that's helping and seems really competent as well. Like, why doesn't that person psychologically for Daniel count as much of humanity as someone like Eli does? Other than it's easier to remember the negative, maybe. But Daniel's misanthropy runs so deep that it can't help me but think that he's so attached to it that other evidence doesn't matter. And even the other evidence HW tries to give him is like, no, I'm not your competitor. I just want my own thing like you had kind of thing. Like in my mind, I'm not doing this, but Daniel can't see it that way. He only can see it through the lens of me or not me. And he uses his evidence of me or not me as the worst people around him. And so his inability to be more sophisticated in his judgment of humanity (laughs) of any given person makes me think well why like what is his bias blinding him to and i'm wondering if it might be he is frustrated that he actually needs other people also you know so anyway (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot i know but i mean like why is his brain working this way okay so i think that Going back to what I said a little bit earlier, I think he's narrowed his life into one thing. And I think people people do this a lot. Uh, their hierarchy becomes the only hierarchy, mm-hmm. the only one that matters. Have I ever talked to you about my, my pyramid theory of, of society? Like that we all kind of live in these little pyramids and we're and well, I've seen pyramid theories yeah. of society. Well, but... no, well, like, and that, and that basically imagine a landscape with that's dotted with these little pyramids of different sizes mm. and if you just imagine that people make up these pyramids and the base is like reg, reg not i don't want to say regular people but like a lot of people and then and in each of those groups whether it's a political party or an organization or a company or a church there's a hierarchy right and mm. people understand themselves and their relation to the world based on that hierarchy so one of my favorite examples of this is magic the gathering <laughs> There's a whole group of people yeah. who know who are the great players at Magic the Gathering, sure. who know what the great decks look like. Their whole world is built around this card game. Not their whole world, but a large part of their world. And they know it intimately, and it's just complete. The rest of society is complete, basically completely unaware it exists. And yet that hierarchy is there. Well, maybe your local hospital. There's a hierarchy with you know the 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 chief physician and and the chief administrator, and and they have people under them, managers under them, and your work there's a hierarchy there right there's managers and then there's this there's a boss and all this kind of stuff the people who can't understand this goes back to what you were saying daniel can't go to the church and understand that that is a different hierarchy and that people's worlds are built around that hierarchy the people who can't understand that everyone's hierarchy is actually just in a sense, a part of a bigger hierarchy like mm. called society and civilization. And where it's basically like slices of reality that, that yeah. people yeah. are experiencing and that's their own. The people who can't understand that almost always become miserable. Yeah. I mean, Sartre said hell is other people. Why is hell other people? Because you can't control other people. Well, why can't you control other people? It's part of why you can't control other people is you don't understand them. Yeah, and I Daniel certainly takes the hell is other people mantra to its logical <laughs> oh, extreme. Oh, the it? furthest he can go. Yeah. I feel like... Sartre could have helped us out a lot by slightly changing his phrasing in that hell is some other people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just putting that one word yeah. in. Yeah, what <laughs> Because 
ultimately no greater joy comes to my well, life than no. through other people. No, I, and I so, mean, I'm not saying no, I think I, hell is other I, people. I know yeah. you're not, I'm not, but as you know, one of my major intellectual pet peeves is seeing one or two things in a situation where you could see nine or 10 or 15. Yes. Or anything. Or go 500. More go more granular. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I just, I guess for me, because my bias is always towards the psychological fundamentally, I can't remember what you said exactly about this, but the tragedy of Daniel to me is that he can't find that granularity no. in people. It's like, okay, I know Eli. Eli's, he even calls him this, a sniveling boy. Eli's a sniveling little bitch, and therefore that's what people are like. Yeah. You know? Well, and his, his operating assumption is that all the time, which means that every time he's talking to someone nicely, he's lying through his teeth, which what does that do to a person in their whole life? Again, unless you're a psychopath, and I don't think Daniel is a, well, it's hard to say. He doesn't seem to me like he's a psychopath. I just think we all know the toll it takes for us to lie through our teeth. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like the, what that does to our own soul and psychology. Daniel has to do this his whole life to get anything he wants. And so to me, the tragedy of him is the, kind of that, that he has to live with that his whole life internally. And to bring it back to Henry, what what is so... I guess impactful in the movie, like very emotional. Like this is probably the most emotional I got in this movie was the scene where he kills Henry because just before he kills Henry or the scene leading up to it, Henry says, look, you caught me in my lie, but the truth is I've had a lot of fun with you. I'm Mm -hmm. really sorry. I'll leave your life forever. I really want to help. And Henry had helped him a bunch of times prior to this when Daniel still thought Henry was his brother to me in that scenario. You can still be really pissed off, but like that's a perfect opportunity for forgiveness. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think a well-adjusted person can at least, well, certainly not kill him, but because Daniel has this already established theory about humanity, it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter that Henry could be his own person and be a little different. He. <laughs> fell short one time and now he must die yeah kind of thing yeah and so obviously there's the tragedy of killing henry which he didn't i mean he was a con man but it doesn't mean he deserved to die the psychological tragedy is daniel not being able to think beyond that and the partitioning the columns he can't get out of that he's trapped like he's trapped that's it like yeah daniel really view is trapped he's trapped and maybe that's again some of that beautiful symbolism of the very beginning of the movie where he feels like he's fallen and he's kind of trapped in, in the, the oil. well yeah <laughs> oh man like and oh, the symbolism in this i mean you you can't talk about it all it's too <laughs> i know if you're trapped you're gonna notice you're gonna notice you're trapped here's what i'd say would be like red flags that you're trapped other people annoy you a lot <laughs> That's all of them. All of them. But, like, they get under your skin. That'd mm-hmm. be one. Two, you think you're way better than most people. Yeah. Because you're probably not. <laughs> so, as an adult, he sees H.W. as a competitor, not as a son who can ex- succeed. And he just used H.W. as a sweet face to help Daniel buy the land, right? And so, you're lower than a bastard. Yeah. You're an orphan. You're lower than a bastard. But he has no one in just stuff. And I think you were referencing this a little bit earlier. Which like his life, the I, I, the tragedy of his life, I was saying, is that all of what did all of us striving accomplish? Mm-hmm. Like a, a one last fight with his son. That's it, and <laughs> yeah. then killing Eli. Yeah, like he got revenge, I guess yeah. at least. 
And so some of the things that lead up to him wanting to kill Eli, there's an early scene where Eli comes up to Daniel and says, I want you to basically say my name to bless the well when we do the well ceremony. So he suffers Eli to keep the peace, but just doesn't do what Eli asks him to. And so on the rubber meets the road moments, he just ignores Eli. And then Eli gets mad, says, where's our money? He slaps him around and fights him in the oil. So then all of this is brought narratively back around when Bandy insists that the only way he'll lease his land to Daniel so that Daniel can put a pipeline through it as if he goes and be saved at church. So he has to be saved again in quotation by Eli in order to get his pipeline. So he has to put up with that terrible small tyranny of Eli and Eli milks that for all it's worth. Just before we talk about the last scene with Eli and Daniel, we should probably set Eli up a little bit right. <laughs> because he's yeah. the other kind of, I mean, and he really is not like, there's not even remotely as close as much about Eli. He, he appears no. in, in a fraction of the scenes. Yeah, but I would still say he's, but he's the, the second, second most, most yeah, important for character. Sure. So what's interesting about Eli, so at the beginning of the movie, there's Paul, who is still played by Paul Dano, but Paul and Eli apparently are brothers, and we find out later are twins. And Paul, who's no dummy, stays vague, so Daniel will pay him so he can tell him about the oil, right? So then he go. Daniel goes there, and Eli is originally quite savvy in his dealing with Daniel. He was better at standing up for his family than his dad was. So we're like, oh, okay, maybe Eli could be a a good help for his family here. But we find out Eli has different motivations. He is much more interested in self-aggrandizement because he's such a weirdo. When he wants Daniel to say his name in front of the well, he's definitely in the preacher business for glory. And part of his antics are his reasoning. And he's quite the charismatic preacher. Yeah. So that gap between how he claims to be humble, it's kind of a Uriah Heap type of feel from our David Copperfield where I'm a preacher, I'm humble, but make sure you say my name kind of thing. And he hams it up in church and all of that and makes you feel that... (laughs) Was well, the it the thing, third revelation? The is, yeah, the thing about him is like I don't think there's ever a moment, at least for me in that movie, where I think of him as a genuine preacher. Sure. And the movie never portrays him as that. We never hear like a sermon from him. We hear him casting <laughs> hear a lot of out, yelling. <laughs> we hear him casting out demons from a woman's yeah. arthritic hands. Yeah, right? there's no teaching. There's no there's no teaching. There's no trying to make people's lives better. It's magic. It's, I mean, and there's even that line where Daniel Plainview says, um, that was quite the show you put on. Yeah. And all of his antics, again, are to make it seem like he's doing something. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which, I mean, there's, it's cool because it's a period piece. So it's showing kind of how people viewed the world and how people were able to interact with the world in order to manipulate other people. Like, so what Eli's doing is he's manipulating people. And, and all of this is exposed at the end, too. Like, that it was mm-hmm. all just for his own money and purposes. And he'd been all over the world. He talks about serving the Lord. But he was more <laughs> interested in making it clear that he'd been everywhere. And and with Eli, it's, he's so, it's so important to him to both appear like he doesn't care about glory and get as much glory as possible. And it's such great acting by Paul Dano. You see it in the twitches of his face in how he's kind of just swallowing his biting and blithering anger at Daniel in some scenes, Uh, how it comes out, how he gets slapped around in the oil. Like he's just, he's made to be so pathetic. Eli is the pathetic to Daniel's alpha. So right. what I like about this relationship, if we're going to go into that, <laughs> is 
this is, I think, a very deep and thoughtful reflection on the relationship between capitalism and religion, but not like there are, I, th- I really, as we've talked about before, I really do think there's lots of positives with religion, but I'm talking about religiosity. There we go. Sure. Religiosity. Yeah. 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 And how capitalism basically just beat the shit out of religion and made it its bitch. Right. And it's like, <laughs> like, especially in America. It, yeah. Like, exactly. And this is America. This is a quintessentially America, American story. And like, when you think great businessmen versus great preachers now mm-hmm. um, in America, like, there's no contest. Like, yeah. Who are the preachers begging for money? Who, like, they're not even comparable. Whereas, you know, there was a time when the church was far more powerful than anything else. Really good art is layer upon layer upon layer of meaning and can be interpreted in many ways. But the way that I interpret this is the relationship between capitalism and faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, cap- what does capitalism bring? It brings prosperity what does capitalism bring it brings jobs it brings education it brings food exactly what did religion bring and and it's kind of the moment of the businessman ascending into a stratosphere that had previously only been religious or like the preacher had the status in the town that now is being usurped Complete, and not just usurped, like... As Michael it, Scott would say, you slurped. <laughs> it's, it's like a rocket has taken off, yeah. and they're not even like, comparable anymore. And and this is, again, a theme in the way people think. What is so intolerable to Eli is not that Daniel's there competing with him, let's say, for the status. It's that Daniel doesn't give a fuck about Eli. Yeah, not <laughs> so at all. Eli isn't even important enough to Daniel to be an opponent. He's just the afterbirth, basically, which is <laughs> yeah. what Daniel calls him later in the movie. Like, you can tell that in every interaction before the very last scene of the movie that Eli and Daniel have, other than the scene where Daniel's slapping him, Daniel just is doing everything he can to be rid of Eli so he can get on to what matters. Yeah. <laughs> like, Eli is so not what matters. And again, I guess a teachable moment for this for Eli is like, well, what do you think about that, Eli? Why do you let that eat you up as opposed to taking a look at yourself and saying like, holy shit, there's this guy here who's so successful doing so many things that people want. What can I learn from that? Yeah. Not, again, Daniel might not be the best example because he's (laughs) so misanthropic, but this is such an ugly part of Eli is that he takes his anger out on his dad because it's someone weaker than him, blaming others' stupidity for his frustrations. So he's externalizing and blaming, you know? He doesn't take any of it to say, hey, look, maybe how do I? Maybe I should go get a job with Daniel. <laughs> Again, obviously not a good idea in the movie because no. Daniel would be a total asshole to him. Even later, like the 16 years later, all of the bad investments that Eli's made, he hasn't learned anything why like how do you not learn yeah this kind of stuff and i think it's you become what you pursue kind of thing and his pursuit seems always glory or recognition Res- without like he doing wants work people to respect him without doing work and that's yeah. why daniel hates him so much I yes think. so it's so funny <laughs> like daniel is basically an evil character he's yeah. not just he's not just shitty he's like evil and yet, 
I'm still cheering for Daniel against Eli. Like it's it's so. I, I mean, I agree. I I am too, and I think the movie. It's so messed up, though. How I mean, obviously, this is unbelievably intentional. There's no real hero in this movie, and we're left with the two main characters are so despicable that we have to like basically pick the one we hate less, which I think is Daniel. Because even though Daniel is calculating and awful and murder, m- like he's sadistic, I don't find him as offensive to my <laughs> sensibilities as i find eli i think there's just something well, about that's what whining I'm about the that beginning I, at the beginning eli's too, such right? a whiner yeah, he's a huge whiner and he and he doesn't take personal responsibility for things and he demands things of the universe that like you said that he doesn't work for it should be coming to him they, kind of they, idea yeah, it's like you owe me five thousand for what he said you're gonna get five thousand to my church and then he never does because mm. he's like why would i do that yeah and of course his biases come out i wish everyone could be saved but they can't so now in the church it's up to him he's the judge of morality which again is that power that he's lacking in every other aspect and so when he's saving daniel he makes daniel feel terrible he's hungry for that power and yet there's a proportional relationship between his sanctimony and his powerlessness. Yeah. Have you noticed this? Which like- I like I love. It's it's a perfect portrayal of like basically when people have their bread and their jobs and stuff, they don't need mm-hmm. very And so I'm gonna wait into a little bit of controversy here. He wants to be seen, and my note is perhaps like some professors in softer disciplines in academia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, they have their little I, fiefdom, and they yep. have control, and they have power. And they I don't want to cast aspersions, but you have to understand resentment as a prime human motivator. And I think in academic disciplines that are softer, let's say, like some social sciences, I'll okay, I'll take it in my own case. My degree is in sociology, which I think has so many interesting facets to it. There are definitely some classes where I would sit through, and within five minutes, it was very clear that I had a professor who had a ideological axe to grind about yeah. something. And part of me now is like, well, I wonder if they would feel that same way if they <laughs> made, like, <laughs> let's say, 50% more <laughs> yeah. a year yeah. than they did, right? Yeah. The kind of injustice that the Philistine merchant class would be the one making all the money and i and the me the educated elite is like eli the educated elite is stuck here in the church uh i have this power but nothing else and once you go out the church door uh, my sermon if it doesn't stay with you i have no power beyond the door and i think and i only bring up university or academics in human and softer humanity disciplines not to pick on them, that seems to me right now in our culture where a lot of ideology and dogma is located. That, um, it is kind of the church of... of it's a modern... Ch- I, I honestly think there are departments in universities that are a good modern equivalent of a church where countervailing facts or evidence are either unwelcome or just more evidence that you're already brainwashed into the more dominant culture that has... But weirdly, they're becoming the dominant <laughs> culture. Well, I don't know about that. I right. think that there's a interesting discussion. But I think, uh, to make it again back to the Greeks, like anywhere where the logos is not respected, 
you are flirting with dogma. Yeah. So the idea that two or more people talking to each other can change each other's mind based on data, evidence, thoughts, feelings, the fact that the world could be made better or worse by human decision-making and action, and that represented through the good faith, honest, veiling, countervailing points being made, that idea of the logos, I have noticed it to be both anathema in a church and in some of my sociology classes <laughs> that I took in my undergrad. And I think that that is a much deeper anger with the world. And that anger that I think Eli has, I just have seen in professors. <laughs> and it's not just professors, it's just that they are the ones who have this kind of small big platform kind of thing like it's not a big platform but you're still standing in front of 300 people talking about i don't know like you can just tell when someone is giving a as an objective as possible take on a particular text and when the edge of their comments or the things they say outright are oh okay <laughs> this is actually uh this is yeah. this is a political class where we're learning what how you vote <laughs> yeah or or what you want the world to look like or, yeah or who you want to punish mm-hmm. usually more than anything and again the reason i say that it's the softer sciences is because if you go to a chemistry class and someone's getting off the rails from the material you'd be like well here's where your stoichiometry went wrong (laughs) yeah here's here's where your ph measurement went wrong whatever right it's just a lot harder to find more definitive null hypotheses in the social sciences and so it's easier to weasel out from them yeah it's yeah i like that it's way easier to weasel out and rationalize your it's it's much easier to rationalize your position when there's not blatant evidence that you're just wrong so apologies to any university professors listening to this two things I know you're definitely not listening to this if you're a university <laughs> professor. And two, I'm not picking on you, but it's worth thinking about, I think. I think uh, it, it's it, the I think sanctimony it, is the problem. Yeah, I, you exactly. Know? I think it just comes down to, like, uh, example, in my master's, I had a professor who was very left-wing. Um, you have a master's? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> revelations <laughs> on really go. true fiction. <laughs> Congratulations, uh, David. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Uh, most of a master's. <laughs> uh, more than any of the master's I have. I had a professor. Uh, uh, I won't name him, but he was very left wing, but he was awesome. And I learned more from him than I learned from any other professor. Uh, and we disagreed on, on most things. And he would get this when I, because I'm a fairly ideological person, to be frank. And whenever I would bring something up in class, because I felt like I needed to. You We're know, working on it. <laughs> I needed to present my position. He would get this smirk on his face of kind of like appreciation that I was passionate about things, but like, uh, he's he's not right. Then I had another professor who would constantly call me out in class and like publicly fight with me <laughs> on things because I disagree with him. Yeah, it's such a different and, thing, isn't and the, it? The the one guy's approach, I have a, an immense amount of respect for him and would recommend his class to anybody. And I think he's he's an incredible human being. And the other guy, I'm like. I don't like him. And it wasn't because one was, I think, more right or wrong on, let's say, the facts of social sciences. I obviously have my opinions on that. But it was because of how they interacted with their students, mm-hmm. including myself, but not just myself. It was how 
one of them was was like you said trying to preach an ideology the other saying these are the facts as i understand them well that's because uh, to me it fundamentally comes down to the fact that regardless of what your political beliefs are education is about dialectic and logos not ideology and dogma yeah yeah regardless of where you fall on the spectrum and annoyingly i have been told the idea of logos and dialectic are just part of the <laughs> overarching <laughs> again this is an unfalsifiable thing if if logos is just a construction of a patriarchy then there's nowhere to go no <laughs> you know then you, yeah and unfortunately i've heard that mostly from people on campuses yeah. or people who work on blogs the from. real world has a way of smacking you in the face and being like hey maybe you don't believe in the logos but reality is really real yeah <laughs> just watch the south park on it yeah <laughs> and so then eli's last line i'm full of sin his weakness finally surfaces because that's it's a great scene where daniel convinces eli to say i'm a false prophet and god is a superstition yeah and most of the time, Eli's and Eli says it about six or seven times, and he he gets loud and wound up about it. But you can tell he's just doing it to please Daniel, so Daniel will give him money yeah. or help him out or bail him out of a situation. But he doesn't really mean it. It doesn't seem like he means it until he says at the end, "I'm full of sin." The moment he says, "I'm full of sin," like it's a completely different facial expression. You can tell he means it, and his weakness finally surfaces. And that just leads us right into the end of the movie where you're just the afterbirth, Eli. You're a sniveling boy, the milkshake quote. And then he murders Eli at the end. And I don't know, like, I do not know what to really think about the end of this movie. It's very impactful, very cinematic. But I definitely want to hear what you think about it because I am not torn. That's not the right word. I, I don't know. Like, does Daniel think he's not going to jail? Like, does this not matter See, to I, him? I, I don't think this has to do with the two characters at all. Okay, good. I, then I, that's I, why I, I want to... I think wanna... these two are, are, are the archetypes that we've been discussing. That this is not the story of Dan. I mean, sorry. As with all good art, it is layered. There is the story of Daniel, and we could talk about that. But I don't think that that's what's okay. being told Okay, so that's at, at the, the symbolic level. It's... What does capitalism do at the end to the sniveling wretch that comes to it and asks it? Murders it. It murders it. And uh, let's look at church attendance. <laughs> let's look at like what is going on in, in the world, right? Mm, in, that's in, interesting. In, in, in the capitalist West, the church is dying because it's been murdered. <laughs> it's been murdered by something that gave people more of what they wanted. And I guess the question mark over there will be blood. A, there will be blood. Something's going to die, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I love... <laughs> it's got a great title for the very last scene of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> As a aesthetic of the movie, I don't remember seeing... And I, I remember looking... So I could be wrong with this, but I'm pretty sure they don't actually show blood they when Henry have, dies. No, they don't. But they show blood. Yeah. So it's even like a teaser for the movie. Like if you wait <laughs> two <laughs> hours end, and 37 yeah, minutes, see, see there the will blood. be blood. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But I, I like to think of it as... When two ideologies, when two conflicting explanations of reality, and I think when we look at the raw capitalism, mm-hmm. the raw competitiveness and capitalism of Daniel and the religiosity. So these are both probably the worst of both things. Right? Yeah, like Daniel and Eli are the perfect representatives because they're the most brutal yes. versions of those what those can be. 
basically, I think the the statement on it is that he's not not making a moral statement of is it good that capitalism killed religion. It's that it just does. It just brutally murders it, because religion, and and the, what I like about it is how they do the setup for this scene. Religion just hasn't calculated far enough ahead, right? They just it doesn't mm-hmm. understand reality well enough. So like, well, it's calculated forever ahead, yeah, <laughs> but not five years from now, right? Well, and and also like it just doesn't understand the things that capitalism understands about people. Mm-hmm. Or or reality. So like, what is what does the businessman Daniel know? He knows I don't have to worry about the oil under the bandy track because drainage, right? <laughs> yeah. He knows that it's seeped into his, and he's got it all. Yeah, he's pumped it out. Yeah, but that is not something that's calculated because it's not something that's thought about. So that prepares the way for it. it just it's it's not prepared to compete with this, as you put it, level of chess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is not just in this movie, but this is a theme I've noticed. For for me personally, religion isn't defeated when it's combated. It's defeated when it's ignored. And that was true in my life. One of the major revelations to me going to university is that I could have people talk about things in the world where Christianity just wasn't relevant right (laughs) it wasn't even that it was disagreed with it just never was important enough to come up in any discussion about anything and i think the death throes of eli are most prominent and maybe i I don't know like maybe on a personal level this is why daniel is so angry at eli is because eli isn't even a worthy opponent yeah but he's still there annoying him (laughs) But you, like you mentioned I, I would that. Agree with yeah. that, yeah, and so then symbolically, if capitalism really did fight religion, I guess in this scenario, maybe it would be a bowling pin to the head type of defeat. <laughs> but I think the reason the reason why Daniel succeeds, and then I guess in your analogy, capitalism succeeds here, is not so much that they're fighting Eli or the church, so they just don't need it anymore. Yeah. No, no, I, I you know? yeah, I don't think it's a, um, so it's not, it's, like it's a, a murder out of, it's not even because he doesn't seem that angry. No, he just, he just well, finally wants to get rid of this. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, uh, you just um, popped a really bad zit yeah. or something <laughs> yeah. like it's been annoying you for a while, but like you don't really spend your time worrying about your zits. No, exactly, exactly. And I don't know, like I'd want to talk about this more to other people who've experienced something similar. Or have thought about this in a similar way because I think the religious ideology or dogma dies not when it's fought, but when it itself has to compete against other things. Right. And so, yeah, well, because it, of course, when, because it, when it doesn't have it, a monopoly, it, if it doesn't have a monopoly, then it's suddenly like, yeah. well, why? It's just in the marketplace of ideas now. And why would you be an Eli when you could be a Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> you know? That is a great summary. And I really like that. I, that's a good now, I wanna, third but party I, view. But of I it. wanna, but I want to, uh, I want to make a clarification on that. Uh, please do. <laughs> I see a big difference between religion and faith. Okay, I like a, a massive difference. The religiosity of Eli is focused on, like you said, glory and respect and position and and a narrowing of the world. Right. And I do not see faith as those. It doesn't have to be those things. Yeah, I mean, to me, someone who has integrity in their belief or sincerity, 
would really not care about Daniel. Exactly. And, would, and, and would, would not like, be... genuinely be serving others. And uh, I mean, it would be about their relationship with the divine mm-hmm. and how they can then, how they live, how, how then shall I live in light of that? But it has basically nothing to do with anyone else. And the faithful people I know, I would say, are some of the most beautiful souls, the kindest people. Yeah. And they only become not that way when, and religion has a way of sneaking in on all of us. Like, religion is not a unique problem. No. Ideology is equally bad, if not I, worse. The way I'd, I'd phrase it, and this is like something I've been thinking about a lot in my life, which is I just think religion has been the most successful particular species of the meme of dogma yes. in human history. Yes. Uh, there have been many others. But it's there haven't been many others that have been lasted for two thousand years, or sixteen hundred years, or fourteen hundred years, right? Or and are uh, still ju- like yeah, yeah and yeah. are still have adherence. Like a good comparison is in I think it was around the turn of the century, which is again when this movie was set. Spiritualism was a huge meme <laughs> that yeah. was really rampant. Like I think it was um what, what's the guy who did Sherlock Holmes? Arthur Scott? No, what's his name? Uh, Arthur Doyle. Arthur Carl Doyle. Ar- Arthur something. Something Doyle. Arthur Clark Doyle? No. No. Uh, Arthur Conan Do- Doyle? Arthur Connell. Connell. Ah, whatever. The guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Arthur Doyle. <laughs> yeah. He was huge into spiritualism. Our, one of our own prime ministers, Mackenzie King. Yeah. There was like seances, right? Yes. Now, you can still find seances or spiritualism in the world today, but it's just not like a rampant social phenomenon <laughs> yeah. like it used yeah. to be. So there are memes that stick longer, and I think Christianity sticks because of how deep into our psychology it goes. And I think as moral philosophy, it's as interesting a thing that has ever existed where this all connects with people of the old guard never want to give it up. Why would they? Yeah. Right? But the new guard, I would submit, I don't think the new guard wins by just fighting the old guard. I think the new guard wins by developing a world where the old guards are relevant. Yeah. I like (laughs) that. So... It's not that you go destroy all the rotary phones. You just build the mobile phone. Yeah. Right? You don't have to go destroy all the horse and carts. You just make an electric or a, you know, a Model T. Yeah. (laughs) The innovation that supplants a prevailing worldview previous to you, it's just like, why do I need you? Not, hey, I hate you. Let's fight. Yeah. I like that. And, And also an understanding that, like, Maybe you're not perfect either, right? And looking back and being like, well, and hopefully it develops a humility to know that that's yeah, what that's, happened that's to what you I'm one day. Yeah, that's what I. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Better, but you worded it better to be. Yeah, but and and I think the double tragedy of this movie is that Eli can't learn, even though he's younger than Daniel. He's the old guard, and he needs to adapt or figure something else out, which. Ironically, I would say the modern American church, mega church, has adapted to being all <laughs> to being very business, <laughs> to, to being business oriented and flashy. And come see us, well, praise <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel, the new guard, but Daniel it doesn't have that humility of the new person on the block to figure out how to mentor maybe the next one. And so instead of being the old guard, you are the guard that makes a world easier for new people to innovate in. Basically, and then you, you can also a very enjoy big tomb. If, yeah. Like when you're hit, hit in his yeah. case, I love that insight though at the end of the movie, cause I didn't even think about it symbolically. So thank you. Um, so then just some potpourri 
to end off with Henry. I thought uh, just something funny that struck me with Henry. This this is some OG identity theft, hey? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is identity bad. theft before there were credit cards or <laughs> sin numbers or just a story. Ones. And but it's like it struck me as like it could be like that back then. Yeah, like how would, there weren't. I mean, there were cameras, but the likelihood of having a picture of someone even was impossible almost. Well, and he'd never met this <laughs> brother supposedly. Yeah. So yeah. So I was like, holy crap! I love in in period pieces or anything in history. I love um, a, a movie or a book or anything making me think about it. Must have been or could have been like that then. Yeah. You know, yeah, or, because or wow, that, that's a totally different way of thinking. Can you like? There's no way anyone could get away with that now. Oh, you're who? You're this person. Let's look. Let's find yeah. it. Like, and now in our world, that would take four seconds, <laughs> right? Yeah. Maybe an upper side of capitalism. Maybe this is the first time in history for regular people to actually start making money. Like it wouldn't have been much before this. No. Where it would have been easy for right? Re- like, because it seems like Daniel's just a regular person. The beginning well, of the like, movie, he doesn't seem American, to have any, That's the thing. And he doesn't seem to have any connections. No. He just actually sweat of his brow type of thing. So he is an American archetype that's in that sense. That's the American dream, exactly. And, well, he's a capitalist archetype, too. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because he is smart, and he is capable, and like, and he is hardworking. Yeah. I did like that thought, though, because I think our cultures, Canada and the U.S., especially in you know any modern <laughs> Western democracy, we are so far removed from the societies of the peasants or feudalism that they have no emotional resonance with us. Yeah, The things that have emotional resonance with us are the downsides of rampant capitalism, let's say, or the externalities or pollution or the environment. All really important things to worry about and tackle. But I think... Because they're because they're of our era, they're what we care about more, and that's natural. But it's always super useful <laughs> to not lose the perspective on. There have been times where it'd be way worse to just be a normal, regular, middle class person. Yep, like way worse. And even in an era not that long ago, because this movie is set like 120 to 100 years ago, like we talked about with safety regulations, the danger these people had to put themselves through to have social mobility in the world and move up financially. I don't know. Like, I'm not a historian, but like, there's probably pockets of it. But this feels like the first time in any history of any country where like a normal, regular person could make money and improve their standing through their own work. Yeah. I think what was great about this movie is it made it feel like it wasn't a cliche. Exactly. Like, it feels like, oh, you know, the American dream kind of thing. But I don't know. Like, if this kind of thing happened, which presumably it did, people having to just go out in the world and the Wild West and dig their own (laughs) things and... Oh, it still does. Yeah. I know a guy who, you know, started working on a rig and now he owns oil companies. Yeah, I don't think that that kind of thing is not to be easily taken for granted or treated lightly. No. The fact that you could have that social mobility. And again, it's not to say that there aren't ways of improving it or making it more, uh, making the opportunities greater for as many people as possible, or as many people as exist. <laughs> I'll say everyone should, we should try to make everyone try to get in there. I think every generation lacks a historical perspective yeah i think our generation has the least excuse for it because we have more access to information than ever before Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what else do you want to say about there will be blood david 
I think in the, this podcast up to this point, we've talked a lot, not this particular podcast, but over the course of all of the episodes we've done, we've talked a lot about ideology and we've talked about narrow mindedness and curiosity. And I think if you want to take a look at a piece of art that is very reflective on what ideology does both to the individual and what ideology is, whether it's religion or capitalism, or, I mean, there are other movies that portray different ideologies and, and show us the weaknesses in them. But I think this one does a great example of pulling out the real evils in both and teaching us the lesson that you know maybe a little humility will take you a long way (laughs) yeah no one in this movie suffers from too much humility do they no (laughs) yeah i uh i really enjoyed watching it again i think i am partial to the pt anderson style of movie because i actually liked magnolia quite a bit even the weirdness of it i like the kind of sweeping shots of this movie it surprised me like i mentioned at the start with its kind of lack of dialogue and and something we haven't really mentioned is a massive part of the way this movie makes you feel is the manner in how daniel talks it's very bizarre he he kind of repeats himself but he never says anything he never taught says more than he needs to he's very mm, terse i guess and all of that, I think, gives you an ability to really ingest what he's doing. Like, there's really no distractions in this movie from what Daniel's doing and what Eli's doing, which is the main thrust of the movie. And because there's no distractions, you really get someone laid raw, I think. Like, I think the rawness of Daniel is... Well, Daniel Day-Lewis won an Oscar, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, and he earned it. Yeah. And the rawness of his hatred for humanity is so useful, I think, to both, if you want to talk about it from economics, you want oil, you want capitalism, you want social mobility, but... This is a wolf (laughs) who's doing it. And there was no one in the movie to stand up to Daniel who was worthy of Daniel. Yeah, that was the thing. There was no opponent. You know, there was no opponent to him that was worthy of, uh, who was a worthy opponent to him. Like, because Eli, giving our little quadrants we use, Eli was soft-headed, hard-hearted. Yeah. (laughs) And so he couldn't handle Daniel's hard-headed, hard-heartedness. And so Daniel is the victor. in the movie because he's stronger than everyone else in it and so it's again so layered in how you want this social mobility but you do need somehow to keep an eye on someone like daniel who could come up and be a wolf hopefully the next time a wolf comes by there will be a shepherd yeah (laughs) and not just sheep yes around that kind of thing I definitely enjoyed this movie. It's so worth the two hours and 40 minutes. Like it, it's, it's a slow movie. The pacing is weird, but it's a very highbrow piece of art that deserves the attention of a thoughtful audience, which I know all of you are. So <laughs> go ahead and watch it again.
Anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. See you later. Bye.